Well, good morning, family. It's good to see all of you in this glorious fall morning. We're in the last uh, few weeks of the Christian year, and we decided to do this um, just for a few weeks here to focus on this theme of generosity. It seemed like a really fitting theme given uh, the fact that we're in the stewardship season and our life as the church, and also the fact that all of our whole society really is focusing on the themes of Thanksgiving during this time of year. And so what we're going to do these next few weeks is we're going to focus on the, the generosity of the king as we see it in the book of Luke, this book that we've been studying together over the last year. And so we're going to take um, some words and some stories from Jesus over the next few weeks and what he has to say about generosity and how his words might shape our own. So today we're looking at this pretty famous passage from Jesus in Luke 12. So I invite you to open your Bibles or look in the bulletin on page 12. We're going to hear Jesus' words today and his call to us. So let's pray together as we hear his voice. We do thank you, Father. You are good. You are a good Father. And we've already experienced your goodness today in so many ways from the moment that we've woken up and the breath in our lungs and the glory of creation and the fellowship of brothers and sisters and the singing of songs. And we pray now that we would experience your goodness through your word. That as we hear these words of Jesus, we pray for this Holy Spirit to be poured out on me and all of us. That we will not only hear your words today, but be changed by them, respond to them with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear these words of Jesus. They are true and given to you in love. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is just thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you, of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near, where no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Seems like at least once a week, uh, someone sends me an article or I read something online um, that is lamenting the state of the culture, uh, lamenting the decline of the culture, lamenting how secular uh, society is becoming and, and how inhospitable uh, of a place our society is becoming for the church, for the Christian community. And 
I always think, when I read these things, I always think about the early church, the first, especially the first two centuries of the church, because it is true, friends, that the church grew and prospered and flourished in those first couple centuries, to be frank, in circumstances far worse and far more inhospitable than any of our own. And the church grew and did not just grow, it flourished, it blew the doors off. It grew in exceeding measure. How? Why? It was not because of their awesome church facilities and sweet venues. They had no church buildings. It was not because of their amazing preachers that people wanted to stream in and hear because, frankly, their meetings were held in secret because of persecution. They were closed meetings. There were no welcome coffees. Uh, there, were, there were no greeters at the door. There were no happy signs or social media presence of the church. So why did the church grow in such an inhospitable environment? You know why? I'll tell you why. Because people were drawn to the lives of the Christians themselves. They were drawn to their lives. One scholar writes there were at least four unique, distinct qualities to Christians that set them apart in that early Christian culture. The first was integrity, that in a culture of great corruption, Christians were scrupulously honest. Uh, The second was sympathy, that in a culture of brutality and violence, Christians practiced mercy and forgiveness. Because of their chastity, that in a culture of great sexual immorality, Christians dared to practice sexual purity. And fourth, their generosity, that in a culture of extreme selfishness and extreme neglect of the poor, Christians were radically, sacrificially, generously, promiscuously giving to all, and especially to the poor. And so that last one, the the generosity of the church, is what we are going to focus on the next few weeks because Jesus in the Gospel of Luke gives so much attention to it. And I want to be clear that this is not about the church budget. This is about our witness that Jesus is telling, if you are my follower, this is one of the ways you will bear witness to me in the kind of society that we live in that is ever becoming more similar to the society of that early church. Jesus says it right here, verse 33. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. This isn't a metaphor. Um, (laughs) Back then, people didn't have bank accounts. Their assets were in their possessions. And so Jesus is literally telling his followers, don't just give out of some of the surplus of your income. Liquidate your assets. Make a dent in your net worth. Give freely, generously, radically, promiscuously. And guess what? They did. What would it take for us to become a community that is that generous? That's what this passage is about, the foundations of Christian generosity. And so we're just going to look at a a few simple ones together today, okay, that we see in this passage. What makes Christians generous? What should make them generous? First, the care of the Father, which gives us new security for our giving. Second, the primacy of the kingdom, which gives us new perspective for our giving. And third, the gift of grace, which gives us motivation for our giving. Okay, so we're going to look at those three things together. So first, let's look at the care of the Father. Jesus addresses a issue or complex um, that is very real and raw for many of us, and that, to be honest, um, blocks or restricts generosity in many of us. 
Can you guess what it is? He says it a bunch in this passage. Anxiety. Anxiety. The word he uses is the Greek word merimnao, which means restless, anxious care. One of the results of worry and anxiety, and if you're a worrier like me, you know this is true, is that one of the results of worry is self-preservation, self-protection, like a scared turtle retreating into its shell. When we are afraid and worried, we turn our resources and we turn our wealth and our focus entirely inward. And what Jesus is saying to us is one of the great keys of generosity is freedom from fear. Freedom from worry that sets you free to be generous because your security is held in the hands of God. Now, this is, and I will admit, very difficult, if not nearly impossible, in a society like ours that literally coaches you to worry. Uh, Financial advisors do this. Forgive me if you're a financial advisor. I do like you, but I'm just using this as an example here. You know, do you remember that ING commercial with like, People would walk around with those numbers above their head. What's your number? I mean, I would watch that commercial and almost have a panic attack, right? The financial advisors tell you, if you do not have X amount of money in 13 years, your children will fall into irretrievable ruin and you will retire into homelessness, right? (laughs) Right? They coach you into worry. Um, You know, we get these magazines, these beautiful catalogs and magazines in the mail with these perfect, beautiful houses immaculately decorated. And, they, and, and then you begin to panic about the state of your own home, even though no children actually live in those fake houses. <laughs> we, the advertising industry coaches us to worry about the state of our lives, the state of technology, about the state of our clothes. Drug commercials and dietitians coach us to worry about your health and about your, your future, uh, your body and your death. News pundits coach us to worry about the politicians and about the markets and about the, you know, the global economy and, and the global instability. In, in other words, if you listened carefully to the barrage of messages that you heard every day, what you would hear loud and clear is this, the world is not okay. And either are you. So we worry, and we are afraid, and we fret, and we spend, and we save, and we earn, and we produce, and we seek to secure our lives against financial and personal disaster, and we acquire more and more stuff and better and better technology to ensure greater and greater control over our environment. And the great irony of it, of course, is the more our efforts increase, the greater our fear becomes. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? And so here we are, America. We are expert. We, we are affluent. We are organized. We have vast control over huge swaths of our environment. We carry supercomputers in our pockets. We have beautiful homes. We have no lack. We have abundant food at every meal. And yet so many of us, so many of you, feel overwhelmed, disoriented, out of control, and deeply afraid. And what's the root? I mean, anxiety is obviously very complex. I'm not trying to be simplistic about it. I know some of us deal with anxiety on a chemical level, and we need a special kind of care for that. But I just want to say this, just point out the words of Jesus, verse 28. With great love and gentleness, he says to each and every one of us, he says, O you of little faith. At the root of so much of our restless fear and anxiety is the deep and abiding belief that you are alone, that no one's taking care of you. No one is there to secure your life and secure your future, and so you better do it yourself. 
And Jesus says in the face of that lie, you have little faith. You're living like an orphan, and will you open your eyes and see the care of the Father? Look at creation. Jesus says, look. My mentor, um, John Stott, was an avid bird watcher, and he loved this passage because he says this is the passage that Jesus commands us to watch birds. It's, you know, it's the only hobby he ever commands. Look at the birds, he says. Look at them. Look at how God cares for them. Look at creation. Look at the flowers of the field. Look at the trees. Have y'all noticed the trees recently? Have you seen them clothed in brilliant glory? Have you seen them? Jesus says, look at these things. Do you see how attentive and intimate God cares for you in all creation? Do you see this? Oh, you of little faith, how much more valuable you are than they. And so his gentle affirmations could not be in greater contradiction with the internal message we live with every day. The world says, you are alone, so you better take care of yourself. Jesus says, you have a father, and your life is secure forever in his hands. Do you hear this today, brothers and sisters? Do you feel the fear draped over our nation like a cloak? Do you feel it? From my rough assessment, about a third of you are terrified that Hillary is going to win. About a third of you are terrified that Trump is going to win. And about a third of you are terrified that either one of them is going to (laughs) win. And so we're all terrified. We're all terrified. And, And I promise you this, you will wake up on Wednesday morning and there will be loud cries of despair, no matter what the outcome. There will be calls of desperation. There will be apocalyptic proclamations over our future by leaders, so-called leaders, who in in reality are peddlers who seek to profit from your fear. And when that happens, and I promise you it will, I want you to, to, to get out your Bibles and read this passage again and hear Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, who sits right now on the throne of God. I want you to hear him say to a little group of ragtag followers who were being oppressed by a militaristic state with their very life on the line, who were impoverished and did not know where their next meal was coming from, I want you to hear him say to them, who were in far worse circumstances than our own, to say to them and to say to you, don't be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid. Sometimes, you know, I want to have a chat with the American church. I just want to sit it down, sit them down. Say, brothers and sisters, let's have a chat. You know, when we give in to panic and fear and worry of this kind, when we play into the same desperate measures as those around us to secure our futures, when we hoard our money, when we retreat into our Christian enclaves, when we listen to the news pundits who prophesy disaster in our national life and we believe them, do you know what we're doing? We are ironically perpetuating the secularism that we hate. We are saying we too, followers of Jesus, also believe that God is absent from the world. Shame on us. Amen. <laughs> Susan, you're the only Pentecostal in the house. You gotta... <laughs> Friends, listen. Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock. You are my people. You are not alone. You are loved. The world is loved. Everything's going to be okay. The kingdom of God is not in jeopardy. 
Jesus is not up for re-election on Tuesday. He reigns. Therefore, because you are loved, listen to this, friends, because you are loved, because you are this secure, you have a new freedom. You have this freedom to come out of the barren desert, fearful places of your ghettos. You can come out of these places into the wide, spacious places of God's generous rule. And you can share all that you have for the healing of the world because your life is forever secure. Is that not beautiful? Next time you see a little baby cradled in the, in the arms of her mother, would you think to yourself, that's me. That's safe. That's secure. That known. That loved. So that's the first foundation of generosity is knowing the care of the Father. Think how more generous you would be if you believed that it was not up to you to secure your own future, but that your future was already secure eternally in the arms of the good Father who loves you. Think how much more generous you would be. That's the first point, care of the Father. Forgive me, I kind of get carried away with that one. Second, the primacy of the kingdom. Jesus is not just giving us a security. He's giving us a new perspective. He's telling his disciples, seek his kingdom. Fear not, the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the sphere of God's rule. And if you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, as I pray some of you may even do today, you become immediately a citizen in the enduring kingdom of God. The kingdom that never ends. The kingdom when all the kingdoms of the world topple and fall, this kingdom endures. And Jesus says, live your life as first and foremost a citizen of that kingdom. Order your priorities around that kingdom. Make your decisions around that kingdom. Let your money even flow according to the priorities and the practices of that kingdom. Sometimes people think that Jesus is like against money or against wealth or against investments, but he's not at all. What he's against, what he's preaching against is bad investment strategies. He's a very wise financial planner. You see, he says in verse 33, while everyone around you is absorbed with storing up treasures and comforts and securities that actually sort of fade and rot away, here's my advice, financial planner Jesus says, here's my advice, invest in those things that actually don't rot, that endure forever. He says, here's what you can be certain of, moths, rust, and thieves, the corrosion of sin, the corrosion of time, the corrosion of nature. Everything in our current existence in the earth as we know it now is winding down. Life is like Christmas afternoon. <laughs> which everything that was so glorious and shining just a few hours ago is now suddenly becoming irrelevant and losing its luster. This suit that I got two years ago is starting to fray. The minivan that was so awesome that we bought eight years ago has a concerning rattle. Uh, the iPhone that I got that was the latest and greatest is now the last and the worst. Even glorious things like, like the Cubs winning the World Series, which was indeed the kingdom of God coming to earth. Um, even that, that, that glow that I was living with for a couple of days, even that is just beginning to fade. You know, our... Our bodies are, are breaking down. The people we love are dying. Your accomplishments will be forgotten. Nations rise up and triumph and are secure on the world stage, and then they slowly exit. 
Even the stars are burning out. Nothing is safe. Everything is giving in, winding down, burning out. You can buy all the insurance that you ever want. You can, you know, every morning you can drink a kale smoothie and eat quinoa. And, um, you know, you, you, can, you can go to the gym, you know, five times a week. You can work really hard to get to the top. And inevitably, the oncologist gives you a bad report. Somebody's already taken your place. The plans that you have so carefully secured are derailed. We are obsessed with building up security and treasure in this present world. And Jesus says to us, why would you do that? Why would you invest all that you have in things that are going to rot? Jesus is like a financial planner with a time machine, which is the best kind of financial planner. He says, I've seen a big view. So don't invest short term in things that rot. Invest in things that last forever and that will never rot and never fade and that will endure don't invest in those things invest in those things that are unaffected by corrosion and time and storms and thieves so here he says here's my recommendation here's the portfolio i recommend the kingdom of god and so we do this so as a church in our church budget planning process we seek to order even our budget here as much around the priorities of the kingdom and things that will last, to see the gospel preached, to see lives changed, to see community formed, disciples made, to see the poor uh, empowered, to see forgiveness extended, the city restored, culture renewed, nations reclaimed. We seek to order our church's priorities around these things in our financial life. And frankly, you can do this too in your own life. You can order your own investments around such things. And so Jesus is not against money. He's not against investments. He's not against goals and success and planning. He's against bad investments. He's against you using those things for ultimately things that will rot. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so Jesus is the the primacy of the kingdom shows us how to give, how to use our money, and to do it in a way for things that will last. So that's the primacy of the kingdom. Now, there's one last thing, though, and that is the gift of grace, which gives us a new motivation. You know, it's funny being a pastor because you realize over the years that people give a lot, for, especially to the church, for a lot of different reasons. People give um, out of guilt, thinking that if they give, they'll somehow, you know, get more forgiveness. Um, people give out of duty, like it's just something I'm supposed to do as a Christian. People give out of pride, to make themselves feel better about themselves. You remember Jerry Lewis, the telethon? Send a gift right now, and you can look at the mirror and know that you are a better person, right? I mean, seriously, we give to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And the problem with all of those motivations is that what you're doing is you're actually giving to get. You're giving to get something, and you know, a, a temporary lifting of your own personal pride, a temporary amelioration of your sense of guilt. You are giving to get something for yourself. And Jesus says, that's not why my people give. In verse uh, 32, the climax of the passage, note Jesus does not say, if you sell your possessions and give to the poor, then God will give you the kingdom. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. Thank God that's not what he says. He says, the Father has given you the kingdom. Now give all you have. See, religion says, give and then God will give you the kingdom. Jesus says, the kingdom is yours, now give. And so Christians don't give out of guilt. Christians don't give out of duty. Christians don't give out of sort of a sense of even just grave responsibility, although we do believe those things, but ultimately Christians give out of gratitude because we believe that all has been already given to us, that we are not giving to get something, but out of everything that is already ours. As Paul says in 
uh, 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though, listen to this, though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The rich Christ became poor, so that poor sinners might become rich. That is the good news, friends. Everything is ours already in Jesus. As we come to the table today, I want you to remember this. It's exemplified here at the table. You know, the very best teachers in the world are those who model their teaching to their students. And so Jesus says, sell your possessions, liquidate everything, give to the poor. And yet this is what he does for us. The prince of heaven liquidating his assets, divesting the entirety of his fortune, giving away everything, coming down among us, living in poverty, suffering our sin, dying our death. Why? To make poor sinners rich, to pay the price of our access to the Father, to pay the price of our citizenship in the kingdom of God. So friends, as you come to this table today, remember why we give. Because of the gospel, we give out of this inner wealth. That the more you experience the wealth of God in Jesus the more giving becomes something you want to do. It flows out of what we already have received. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we've seen these foundations of Christian giving. We've seen that the care of the Father gives us a new security for our giving. We know we're secure. The primacy of the kingdom gives us a new perspective. We know how to use our money. And third, the gift of grace gives us a new motivation that we give out of desire. Just imagine if you were this kind of person who lived all the time in this deep sense of the Father's care. You knew your security was not in your own hands, but in his. If you had a person who lived with such a clear sense of what really matters in life, and if you were a person who carried such deep gratitude in your soul for the grace that you'd received, what kind of people would we be if we lived like that? Well, one of the things we'd be is a generous people. People who are not afraid to give, people who are focused in our giving, and people who want to give. So friends, as you come to the table today, I want you to invite you to bring something. Bring your anxieties. Bring your burdens. Bring your fears. Bring your brokenness. Bring your worries. And put them into the hands of the good Father who through Jesus Christ is at the table. His love is stronger than your fears. His kingdom is better than any alternative and his grace is deeper than any sin, any brokenness that you carry here today. Do not be afraid, little flock. The Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you have opened the way into the kingdom through Jesus, and that it is a kingdom that never ends, and that we are citizens even now, and it is a kingdom in which we are loved and secure forever. Give us a taste of that grace now as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.